How many of you have ever been to the uh, Shepherd of the Hills Passion Play up near Branson, Missouri? Anybody ever been there? Okay. Maybe you heard about the story of the actor who was playing the part of Jesus in that Shepherd of the Hills Passion Play. He was carrying his cross up a hill, and a tourist began heckling him and shouting insults at him. And finally, he had all he could take, and so he threw down his cross, walked over to the tourist, and punched him out. Now, after the play was over, the director told him, you know, I know the guy was a pest, but I cannot condone what you did. Besides playing the part of Jesus, Jesus never retaliated, so don't do that again. He said, okay. Promised he wouldn't, but the next day, he's carrying the cross, and the heckler was back worse than ever. And finally, the actor exploded, ran over, and punched the guy's lights out one more time. Well, the director said, okay, that's it. I have to fire you. We can't have you behaving like that, uh, particularly since you're playing the part of Jesus. But the guy, he, he begged. He said, please, please, give me one more chance, one more chance. I really need this job, and I know if I really, really try hard, I can handle it if it happens again. So the director said, okay, one more chance. Well, the next day, he's carrying the cross, and sure enough, that heckler is back. And you could tell that the, that the actor was trying really hard because he was clenching his fists and he was gritting his teeth. But finally, he stopped and he looked at that heckler and said, I'll meet you after the resurrection. <laughs> well, if you see the outline, there's an outline on pages, um, the back part of your worship folder, pages 12 and 13, you also see up on the screen, uh, it's a principle. Sometimes it's hard for those people who profess to be Christians to behave like Christians. Now, I, I feel sorry for that guy. Yeah, he's playing the part of Jesus, for heaven's sakes. But it's still hard sometimes. We try to carry our crosses, but guess what? Somebody crosses us, and we tend to lose our composure. And what do we do? We begin to behave exactly like the rest of the world behaves. But the Bible says we are to be people of, uh, who, who practice and exercise love with one another. You see some passages on the screen, for example, from Romans 12. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's another passage that will come up here, I think, from Ephesians. Be completely humble and gentle, uh, bearing with one another in love. And I think there's one more passage from Hebrews. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Now, those three scriptures all say basically the same thing. Now, it's going to be difficult sometimes. Not everybody is easy to love, believe me. Anybody got somebody in their family that's kind of hard to love? They're, they're like heavenly sandpaper. You got people like that in your life? But not everybody's easy to love. Um, believe it or not, I'm not even that easy to love. It, my wife's coming home tomorrow morning you can ask her next Sunday. And she'll say, yeah, there are some days <clears throat> you just need to suck it up a little bit <laughs> and move on. But the Bible doesn't give us an excuse. It says you still are required to do what? Live in peace and harmony with everyone. So this morning, I want to take just the first three verses, just the first three verses of what Sue just read to you from 1 Corinthians uh, 13. And I want to uh, share with you uh, what I would call the high way of living. I mean, what Paul is saying in the first three verses very simply is 
this is the most excellent way. This is the high way of love. Now, here's the very first thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at the importance of love in our lives. Now, Paul says, let's get, let's get to where love really counts. And he points out that there are at least five things that are not near as good as love, but there are five things that we as Christians sometimes think are more important. Here's the very first one. Paul says, love is more important than spiritual gifts. If you go back to the text, what does he say? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Now, on the day of Pentecost, if you can go back to that book of Acts, God gave his apostles that special ability to speak languages that none of them had ever learned so that the people who were there could understand what they were saying. But here, Paul is saying that if God gave him the gift of being able to speak every human language there was, and if he could speak every language eloquently, and even if he could speak the language, whatever the language the angels sing, but if he didn't have love, he'd be nothing more than a clanging cymbal. Do we have somebody sitting up at the drums right now? Somebody smack a cymbal up there? Okay, sound effects in the sermon. There we go. Now you know what that's like. Now what did he mean by that? Well, back in the first century, back in the first century, there was a big gong or a cymbal hanging at the entrance to most pagan uh, temples. It would be right outside. And when people came to worship, uh, they would pick up this big thing and they would smack that big cymbal or that big gong to wake up the gods so that they could listen to their prayers. So what Paul is saying to us here is that even if he could speak with the greatest of eloquence in every language, but he did not have love, then his life was about as useless as that ridiculous act of pounding on a gong to awaken non-existent gods. Okay, here's the second thing. Paul says love is more important than knowledge. He goes on in the text, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. In other words, if you know everything there is to know about medicine and philosophy and psychology and theology and every other form of ology, if you know it all, but you don't have love, you are nothing at all. That's why it always amazes me that whenever people look at our society and they try to figure out what's wrong, you know, why we are killing each other, why we abuse each other, the experts always seem to come back to the same answer. They say, we need more education. We need to get everybody educated. Once we get everybody educated, then we won't have these problems anymore. Now, I'm certainly not opposed to education, but I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, I don't think we need more knowledge. What we really need is more love. Here's the third thing Paul says. He says, love is more important than faith. You get that one? They kind of knock you a little off. He says, love is more important than faith. Now, he's not saying faith isn't important. He just says, love is more important. He says, if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. 
Zero. Zip. Nada. Now, what's faith? What's your faith? What do you believe in? I mean, do you believe that God is the creator of the world? Do you believe that Jesus is his only begotten son and that he came into this world and lived a sinless life and that he died on the cross and was buried and three days later rose again? Do you believe that he is right now at the right hand of God the Father? He's preparing a place for us and that one day he's going to come back again? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is our guide and our comforter and our counselor? Now, if you believe all of those things, that's well and good, and I commend you for believing that. But the Bible very clearly teaches that if you believe all the right stuff, but you do not have love, you are nothing. Because even faith has no value unless it's backed up by love. If you don't buy into that, go back, go home this afternoon and just read the, read the book of James. Faith without works is what? Dead. The priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? The priest and the Levite probably had faith. I mean, they were church workers, for goodness sake. The problem was they had no love. That's why they could walk by on the other side of the road and watch a man die. Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Here's the fourth thing. Love is more important than generosity. Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I want you to notice something. It says, if I give all. He did not say, if I give my tithe. He did not say, if you give 10%. He says, if you give everything, if you empty out your checking account, you empty out your retirement account, you sell your house, you cash in all of your insurance policies, stocks, bonds, everything, and you end up sitting on the corner wearing nothing but one simple suit of clothing, and you've given it all the way to the poor. He said, if you've done that, and you still don't have love, what? You're still nothing. You don't need to raise your hand for this, but are you a generous person? I bet like me, you get a lot of people who either A, come to your door looking for something. We have them show up here at the church all the time. Is the preacher in? They're looking for something. You get phone calls. You get junk mail. People are looking for you to give them something. Are you a generous person? Well, you answer that question yourself. But, but I want to take it a little bit further. If you consider yourself to be a generous person, why do you do it? Why do you give? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Do you give money to church because I preached that stewardship sermon two weeks ago? Do you put money in the plate on a Sunday morning because you don't want to feel embarrassed to put nothing in and everybody would look down the row and wonder why you didn't? Do you, do you reach in and get the really big bill and kind of put it in the plate like this so everybody can see what that bill is so you can impress other people? Do you give because you're afraid that God won't love you if you don't? Do you give because you think if I give a lot, God is going to give me back a lot? 
Well, I got, I got news for you. All of those are wrong reasons. If the only reason I ever give is to receive or to benefit myself, then love is absent, giving is empty, and I might as well be banging the gong. See, the motive for giving is always what? It's love. It's love for God. It's love for other people. I said that a couple weeks ago. I, I told you about what I truly believe about giving. I don't, I don't tithe. I don't give my offerings for any other reason than I love God. I love what God stands for, who he is, that whole ball of wax, and because I want other people to know what I know. That's why I would do it. Here's number five. Love is more important than accomplishments. Next one's really kind of hard. He says, if I surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, what does it mean, surrender your body to the flames? Well, I, you know, I, I suggest he's talking about martyrdom here. Martyrdom. Being so faithful, so committed to God, that you end up dying because of your faith. How deep is your commitment to Christ? Are you willing to lay down your life for God if it came for that? See, Paul is saying that even if you do all of these things we just talked about, which as a Christ follower, it really ought to do. You ought to be generous. I mean, you ought, ought to be, um, you ought to have some accomplishments. You ought to bear fruit. If you take all of these five things I talked about, he said you ought to do them. But even if you did all of those things and there's no love behind it, then it amounts to nothing in God's sight. See, love is more important than spiritual gifts. Love is more important than knowledge. Love is more important than faith. It's more important than generosity. It's more important than all the stuff you might accomplish for the kingdom of God. Now, we haven't quite yet defined what this love is. But let's go to the second major point. Let's look at the practice of love in our daily lives. How would this manifest ourselves? If we were, you know, if we say out on the sign, Right now it says, what, avoid uh, sin burn, put on sunscreen. <laughs> what if we change the sign this week and it says, this church is full of lovers? <laughs> you suppose anybody would go, what? <laughs> you know, nothing but lovers. Lovers only. Or we, you will call this lover's lane. I don't know, we could, some of you guys probably think of some more things you could do with that. But how would it manifest itself? Well, John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, notice that this is a commandment. It is not a suggestion. This is not a, well, I don't know, you guys are awful busy, so I guess if you just kind of get around to it every once in a while, I might kind of give it a try. No, it's a commandment. You know what I've discovered about God's commandments? God never gives us a commandment that we cannot do. We tend to think that love is something that just happens. You fall in love like you fall in a ditch. You fall out of love like you fall out of a tree. I mean, we think love is something that just happens. And then we get, man, think about the love songs, you know. I can't help falling in love with you. I think, was that an Elvis song? Someone else sings, you've lost that loving feeling. My favorite one was, I love you, please tell me your name. <laughs> That's really deep stuff, isn't it? But the Bible says, 
that love is something we can control. He commands us to love each other. And we, we have to differentiate here. I mean, I could say, I am commanded to love Amber. I am not commanded to like everything she does. It's a little different, isn't it, Amber? I might like, like how you do A, B, and C, but I still love you. That's what God does. He says, you know, don't really like some of the stuff you're doing, but it's not going to stop me from loving you. That's what God says to all of us. See, I can will to love you, and you can will to love me, so this is not some hopeless situation we're in. Now, what kind of love are we talking about here? And I'm going to tell you that most of the times you've seen love in the passages so far, it's the Greek word agape. It is this selfless kind of love. In Philippians 2.4, Paul says he wants us to behave and act the way Jesus did. It says each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, love is this unselfish attitude. Now, I want, to, I want us to think for a moment how this would look if we shoved it into our everyday life. Let, let's, let's think, first of all, how this might apply to our own family, our own family. Let's just suppose that every family that's here today, every family that somebody in this family, I don't care who it is, would simply say, I'm going to go home today, and I'm going to put love into practice, and I'm going to start with my spouse. I'm going to love my spouse first and foremost, even if they're behaving like a total jerk, even if she's a creep. I mean, I, I'm going to love that person no matter what. Can you see how that might affect the atmosphere of your house? If you just said today, I'm going to go home and I'm going to love this person I married. After all, it was for better, for worse. I'm just going to love them no matter what. Would that change the inside of your house? Imagine, there wouldn't be any bickering, no arguing. Well, some of you are looking at each other already. <laughs> Got homework to do, friends. No sharp words. Why? Because their interests are just as important as your interests. And guess what? If this happens pretty soon, it would start filtering down to your relationship with your kids. And maybe even to your in-laws or your outlaws or everybody else in the family. Why? Just because you started with loving your spouse. But what if it crept down a little bit far? It begins in the family and now it spills over into the church family. First Lutheran, a family of lovers. Jesus said, by this you shall know that you are my, they shall know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, in that passage, who's the they? It says, but by this they will know. Who's going to know that you're my disciples? I'll suggest to you, it's the world will know. In fact, that's the way the world finds out whether the message of Jesus Christ is true or not. They watch Christians. And they say, are these Christians loving each other? Do they show compassion for each other? Do they care about each other? Or are they the same way as everybody else? Do they stand around and, and, and do all this backbiting all over the place? Do they gossip like everybody else? Do they talk bad about other people like everybody else? Or do we have standards that 
cause people to go, man, those folks are different. And then they want to know. See, love and compassion causes you to ask some pretty serious questions. Like, what, what's it like to hurt deep inside and no one knows you're hurting and you don't feel free to tell them that you're hurting? You know, love and compassion, you start thinking, what's it like being sick and knowing that you're not going to get well and wanting more than anything else to live? Or what's it like to be handicapped? Or what's it like to be a minority? What's it like to be dealing with marital problems? What kind of burdens are people carrying? And do we care enough to help those people bear those burdens? See, that's what it means when Jesus talks about loving other people as he loved us. That we stop and think about those things. But imagine, we go from our family into our church family. What if it went out into our workplace, out into the marketplace? You know, we do it when we show people we work next to or we work with that Jesus is Lord, not just by our words, but by our example. Now, some of you might have some pretty rough bosses. I don't know. Maybe you don't like your boss very much at all. Maybe you work with somebody who makes fun of you or mocks you or picks on you all the time. But Jesus says what? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12 says, if your enemy is hungry, what? <laughs> Tell him to go get a job. No, it says feed him. If he's thirsty, hey, go to somebody else's house and get a drink. No, you give him something to drink. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'll tell you a story in closing. A story about a guy whose name is uh, Doug Nichols. And I want to end with this story because I think it really illustrates what I've been trying to say this morning. You probably don't know who Doug Nichols is. It, you know, who he is is probably is not nearly as important as what he did and what he learned and what he shows us. Doug Nichols went to India to be a missionary. And while he was there, he was just starting to learn the language when he became infected with tuberculosis, TB. And they put him in a sanitarium. Those places in India are not good places to be in, believe me. It was not very clean. The conditions were difficult because they kept bringing in more sick people one after the other. But Doug decided that he was going to do the very best he could do in that situation. So when he was sent there, he took with him a whole bunch of Christian books and Christian tracts, and he tried to witness to the other uh, patients in the sanitarium. But when he tried to hand out his books, when he tried to hand out his tracts, they wanted nothing to do with him, his books, or his information. He tried to witness, but he was unable really to communicate in their dialect. But yet here he was, sick, and he was going to be there for a very long time. It seemed like the work that he had been sent to do was not going to be done because people would not listen to him. But because of his TB, every night about 2 o'clock in the morning, he'd wake up with this chronic coughing that wouldn't quit. <clears throat> and one night when he awoke, he noticed across the aisle from his bed was an old man who was trying to get out of his bed. The man would kind of roll himself up into a little ball and he tried to get the momentum going so that he could kind of roll out and uh, stand up on his feet. But no matter how hard he tried, he could not 
get out of bed. He was just too weak. And finally, after several attempts of trying to get out of the bed, the, the man just laid back and he began to cry. He just began to sob. Well, the next morning, Doug understood why he was trying to get up. It was to go to the bathroom. He did not have enough strength to do that, so his bed was a mess, and there was this foul smell in the air. Now, all the other patients made fun of him. The nurses who came to clean up his bed were not nice to him. He saw several nurses slap this old man. Doug said that the old man just laid there and cried. But then he, he, he wrote in his little story, he said, that, night, that next night about 2 o'clock, I started coughing again. I looked across the way, and there was the old man again trying to get out of his bed. And he said, I really didn't want to do it, but somehow I managed to get up. I walked across that aisle, and I helped that old man stand up. But the old man, while he could stand, was too weak to walk. So Doug said, I took him in my arms, and I carried this old man like a baby. He said it was so light that it really wasn't a very hard job. I took him to the bathroom, which was nothing more than just some sort of a dirty hole, and I stood there, and he said, I cradled him in my arms as he took care of himself. He said, I, then I carried him back to bed, and I laid him down. He said, as I turned to leave, he reached up, and he grabbed my face, and he pulled it down close to me, close to him, and he kissed me on the cheek, and he said something which I can only guess was, thank you. Doug said the very next morning there were patients waiting when he woke up, and they asked if they could read some of the books and have some of the tracts that he had brought with him. Others had questions about God, the God he worshipped, and his son that came into the world to die not only for him but to die for everyone. And Doug said that in the very next few weeks, he gave out all of that Christian literature that he'd brought, and many of the doctors, many of the nurses, and many of the patients came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior as well. Now, I want to read to you just the end of what he wrote. He said, now what did I do? I didn't preach a sermon. I couldn't even speak their language. I didn't have a great lesson to teach or wonderful things to offer. All I did was take an old man to the bathroom, and anyone can do that. Maybe that's why someone has said they will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. That, my friends, is the more excellent way. That's the high way. That's the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you came into this world to love us, the unlovable, and you ask us to do the same. But so often we see the unlovable, and we want to walk on the other side of the road and ignore them. But yet you persistently have your hand on us. You remind us that faith and hope are really good. But the greatest of all of these things is love. Love is putting our faith into action. Father, may we learn to live the most excellent way. May we learn high way wisdom. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.